A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, thank you for downloading the Times Red Box podcast. I'm not Matt Chorley. Sitting in this week, would it be quicker to count up the days when Matt isn't on holiday? He's off again, sunning himself on a sun lounger somewhere abroad and baking hot while the rest of us are talking to the columnists, which we will in a moment, and also uh, we'll be hearing from the mother and father of the House of Commons, Harriet Harman and Sir Peter Bottomley. Between them, their bums have been on the green benches of the Commons for 85 years in total, so we'll uh, find out what they've learned, what they've loved, what they've hated after we check in with our columnists. Today, Lydia Purvis and Rachel Cunliffe. First of all, on the topic of Harriet Harman and Peter Bottomley, they've both been in the Commons for, for 85 years. Um, I'd like to hear from you, A, well, either the job you, you were in for an absolutely amazing long amount of time or, which I think is more entertaining, a job where you were in position for a sort of comedy short period amount of time. Um, Libby, did you ever sort of get sacked after two days? Uh, not after two days, no. I mean, I, I resigned after six months attempting to edit the Tatler. Um, really? Uh, and my longest job, I think, was, I suppose it was the, it was the BBC midweek programme, 34 years. So 34 years or six months, that's, <laughs> that's my division. Rachel, what about you? I liked making sandwiches in a, in a, in a high street cafe that I, I really enjoyed. Uh, but I only lasted a week because the person who had been leaving, who I was replacing, actually decided not to go. So I was then on my trial shift and the job no longer existed. Uh, I did learn how to make coffee uh, properly using a espresso machine that I was very proud of. I don't think I could do it now. You trained as a barista. I did. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, studio at times.radio, if you're listening, uh, have been in a job for maybe even less than that, if you can beat Rachel's um, one week. Um, I want to start with both of you about your reaction to what we're seeing in Afghanistan. Um, not just um, political fury, like we heard from Tom Tugendhat a few minutes ago at uh, the conduct of some ministers in terms of foreign policy, but also some of the scenes of people desperately uh, clambering up uh, airplane gangways trying to get out of the city. Libby, what does your mind turn to when you see some of the dreadful pictures that we've been seeing on the television? Oh, it's just heartbreaking. And I think especially for women, um, for everyone, but for women who felt all the new freedoms and education and just see it melting away in no time. But I think it's it's a grim moment when we have to accept two things. One is that in global terms, we are now a pretty junior partner. And if an American president shrugs off responsibility for 20 years of intervention, there's not a lot we can do other than look after our own interpreters and the people who helped us and 
urge America to take their share of refugees too. Um, I think the interesting question, which is coming up a lot now, is should we ever have interfered in the first place? There was a startlingly rough column by Rod Little yesterday saying, no, it shouldn't have ever been there. Um, he said, because, you know, it, it was always going to go this way. And it's all very well Biden saying, oh, there's only seven and a half thousand Taliban against a great big army that we trained. But the Taliban clearly has not been short of macho volunteers in all the lesser towns and country places they've taken. You know, give the lads some guns, tell them to sort out these foreigners and these uppity women. Uh, you know, the, the question is, could could it ever have succeeded? And that's a terrible question to have to, when, when you think about the suffering at the moment mm. of uh, the, the people in, in Kabul and the other towns, you know, which, which had changed. Um, it, it's just heartbreaking, the whole thing. And I think it makes me think less of Biden. And that doesn't make me very happy either. Rachel, do you agree? Uh, to some extent, I think that... Uh... Oh, we've lost the light of... Bit. Oh, Rachel, you just dipped out then. Oh. Start again. <laughs> Hello. Uh, I, I think that the, the fighting was, in fact, the first stage and the easy stage, and that uh, intervention in a country like Afghanistan takes patience uh, and takes something that is measured in, in decades rather than years and in, and in battles. And I think that there should have been a lot more understanding going in that if you are going to go in, you need a plan for the next 50 years of how you're going to stabilise the country and withdraw slowly in stages and support the administration that you, you, have, you have managed to, to put in place there. I, I think that the, what has really thrown this into disarray is the anniversary of September the 11th and the symbolic nature of that 20 years, the idea of both the Trump administration and the Biden administration that a symbolic withdrawal was, was a signal to the rest of the world and the kind of focus on that as a symbol rather than the reality has driven an incredible uh, mm. example of, of misjudgment that has left us where we are now. Now, a withdrawal, uh, you could say it was inevitable that some of the ground would have been lost, but had it been a bit slower, had it been a bit more measured, uh, and had perhaps the uh, it been done in stages so that you could see uh, a, a reduction of certain troops, here's what the Taliban do, what happens next, that would probably have been a, a, a much more measured and, and mature approach to it, but you wouldn't have hit that September the 11th deadline, which I think is, a, is an absolute tragedy. But to quote Libby, um, Tom, Tom Tugendhat and his comment piece in the paper today, um, he says that you know, there is some use to British intervention in the world. He says we can highlight the strategic patience we've displayed in Cyprus and Estonia, the resolve we displayed in Sierra Leone and, and Kosovo. We can point to the strength of our, of our alliances with the Five Eyes and others. We have a proud record. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm with Tugendhat on all that. But Afghanistan is vast. I don't know if you've ever flown east over it and looked down and seen how many wild mountainous regions there are, how many places to hide, how un, un, enormously ungovernable it is. I mean, the Russians failed and pulled out. You know, it, it's uh, in, in a way, it, it's very hard to say whether any of us should have been there in the first place. And certainly, I think, I mean, Britain is a very junior partner. We've just got to keep hammering at this. Mm. You know, we are not this great, amazing, imperial, greatest country in the world, haven't been for decades and decades. And we have to accept, you know, that 
we're in the hands, if we join in with the Americans, we're in the hands of their possible capricious pulling out for political reasons, as Rachel has just said. But also, Rachel, there's a question about why we would ever get involved in places like that and why the US would get involved in places like this. Um, but there was a clip during the rounds yesterday of um, of Joe Biden speaking to, to CBS a few weeks ago now on the topic of pulling out of Afghanistan, and it was put to him um, that women would, would, would lose uh, rights which had been earned over the past 20 years, would maybe be pushed out, out of education, there'd be human rights abuses and the rest. And Joe Biden's argument was, um, well, there are lots of places around the world where women don't have rights, where uh, human rights abuses take place, and we're not uh, sending the military into those countries. Um, we go where our secure, which, to places which are risking our own security. Is that right? Are you comfortable with that? Uh, I, I think it's it's realistic and to a certain extent. The countries that the US chooses to intervene in are ones of strategic importance. And we're not just talking about uh, women losing rights. We're talking about young girls, 12, 13-year-old girls who would have been in school now facing being married off to, to Taliban fighters. So it is incredibly grim. Yes, there are other places in the world where, where that happens. I think this is just a change in, in mindset from America as the, the world's policeman, which is what it has been essentially since the end of the, the Cold War and a change in attitude there. And I have to say that while I find that incredibly distressing from, from, from my perspective, mm. I think it is quite likely that a significant number of American voters probably do feel that way and probably feel that uh, for, for decades America has focused too much on what's happening overseas and sending money and resources and in fact risking American lives for places that average American voters don't particularly yeah. know know or care about. So it's about moral duty to the world versus a moral duty to your own citizens. Uh, I think it's just quite stark to have a democratic president put it in those very real politic terms. Uh, just finally on this, from both of you, I'm interested in what you make of of the state of our leadership. I, I take the point about um, so much of this uh, is down to the US, but um, we had Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, in tears on LBC this morning, uh, bemoaning the fact that some people won't get back. And we have the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, who only yesterday returned from his holiday in Cyprus. Libby, what do you think when you hear that? I think that Foreign Secretaries should always be prepared to mess up their family holidays when something enormous happens in the world. Uh, I think he should have been. I think it's, it's taken too long and it's kind of embarrassing. Rachel? I would agree with that. And while uh, it's true that we can't stay there without the, the American support, we could certainly be doing more and doing more faster to process visas and, and make sure that we grant asylum to those uh, Afghans who have worked with the British forces, whether they were directly employed with the, the British Army or, or not. I think we have a moral duty to protect them. And I don't see that happening at the speed that is necessary. Libby, move us on to the, to the subject of your column this morning in the paper. Um, also a, a, a very tricky, depressing subject area, but an important one. And this is all around um, what happened in Plymouth, the, the shooting. And the headline that is in the columns says the sexualised culture breeds angry young men. Um, what do you mean by that? 
Well, I'm careful about verbally summarising it because what I am saying is no defence of the killer Davison. What I am just saying is, look, read carefully what he said and wrote about his absolute despair and depression and misery and confusion about women and sex. And then look at the cultural messages which are rained constantly on young men, you know, from sort of Love Island to every drama to every catwalk about the all importance of being a stud and getting a woman. And I think uh, you, you have to look. I mean, the, the incel thing is all disgusting, the, the, the hate-filled stuff which comes out of these American sites. He, he wasn't 100% on with that. There's an extraordinarily sad little moment where he says, you know, but suppose I did meet... You know, he, he thinks that all sex happens in your teens and you've got to get going at 14, 15, or you're, or you're a loser. You know, he said, I've missed the boat completely. He said, if I meet a woman now, I mean, she'll have had so many millions of affairs, you know, at my age, you know, and, and she'll, she'll be broken and unable to love anyone as she could when she was 16. He's 22, for heaven's sake. You know, some extraordinary thing has been fed to him that it's just all happening in the teens. And uh, it, it just isn't. But I think you have to look at the whole culture and at the misery um, you know, there are angry bits in his in his blogs and so on, which are obviously reprehensible and terrible, misogynistic. But there's also an immense pathos. And I thought, well, let's actually point that out. And oddly enough, under the line, I have not been shot to pieces as yet. Probably will be later in the, in the day. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is what you what you sometimes expect. I thought there'd be a lot of people saying, well, he's just a murderer, he's just a murderer, he's just a nutter, he's just a murderer. But actually, I think people kind of get that. You know, there is something slightly worrying about our hyper-sexualized, very shallow public pop culture. Uh, and Rachel, something worrying and potentially widespread, at least more so than we maybe realise. So I, I actually agreed with more than I thought I would in, in Libby's column. I think it's a very interesting and insightful column, and it certainly made me think. I, I would say that part of our problem is is not the sexualized, pornified culture that we have. I think that that is often a, a, a term that people use when they're basically suggesting that we go back to a time before we talked about <laughs> sex and particularly women's sexuality as openly as we do. What I'd like to see is more comprehensive and engaging sex ed talking to young people about how what they see in porn or what they see in sexualized media doesn't necessarily bear uh, a strong resemblance to real life and real life sex having a conversation with young boys about porn having a com conversation with uh, both genders about healthy sexual relationships and we don't talk about that we have all this media libby's right a very sexualized pornified culture but then we just leave teenagers there to engage with it on as as they encounter it we don't we're, we're very squeamish about actually talking to them about yeah. what they're seeing mm. and what con and what uh, what conclusions they can draw from that so i would say keep the sexualized culture but uh, help young people engage with it in a more healthy way Libby? No, I, I agree with that. And also, we ought to, there ought to be some sort of cultural acceptance that actually everything does not end when you're 22. You know, that actually uh, the, uh, happy, happy sex lives and new sex lives and new hookups can happen at just about any age. You know, that, that life goes on, that it's about relationships. It's not just about this sort of conquest. You know, it, sex is about comfort and connection as much as it's about conquest. And, and the conquest thing has been very, very heavily hammered at home uh, in the culture. Um, well, what do you think needs to be done then, Libby, necessarily? And do you think actually if some kind of educational uh, 
rollout uh, were actually put into practice, uh, as sort of Rachel was hinting at, that would actually solve issues like this? You can't say there's one solution. Of course, education is a large part of it. I think another part of it, to be honest, is ridicule of the, uh, the the sort of sexualized culture you know i think i think we need more people sort of saying actually this is nonsense and more influential people you know and pop culture people sort of saying well you know you know well i was looking forward to sort of pop singers pop idols kind of popping up well i was a virgin till i was 26 you know I never met anyone i really liked enough and i only want to have sex with someone i really really like you know <laughs> if that ever even happened i think that would have quite a it would have quite an influence um i think we need we need a change of a change of thought and that may happen that may happen sort of automatically people may get sick of all this stuff mm. people might look back at love island in even five or eight years time and think heck that was disgusting you know what was that all about well i think it's a bit um, of what we think about that now it can happen well yes some do yes because yeah. a frightfully civilized chat but <laughs> no it, it's things things do go in great sort of sweeping changes i just sometimes i think it's just useful to point things out that are happening rather than saying and oh, this is my solution yes. you know though of course rachel's quite right a lot of it has to do with education and with talking very frankly to teenagers um, uh, and not just talking, not just saying how to do it, how to do it right, how to use a condom, but, you know, how maybe not to bother doing it yet. But also, Rachel, maybe even going further than that, um, this obviously has ended with uh, the murder of, of numerous people, some very, very young. Um, should we not be even looking at something that looks a bit more like prevent in terms of the radicalisation that happens with Islamist terrorists, but on this kind of front in terms of what's happening with, you know, or um, incels and the like online? That's really interesting. And the question of whether this counts as terrorism it, and should be treated as such is an important one. We've actually got a, a piece running in the New Statesman later this week by the Institute of Strategic Dialogue that works on exactly this this topic. Uh, and one of the things that, that they pointed out when I when I spoke to them was that it's not necessarily helpful to group things mm. under a, a terrorist banner. And we seem to treat terrorism more seriously than than, than cold-hearted mass murder, which is what, what this was. But that there are ways of talking about online radicalization, online cultures, the, uh, the, the way that you can get into a, an internet spiral where your prejudices are just confirmed and confirmed by other people who you see as being like you and you can become more isolated. That's not necessarily terrorism in the sense of joining a political movement and blowing people up, but it is a cultural phenomenon that we should pay more attention to and not treat it as a poor young man who just, quote, snapped that there are cultural forces here and if we can engage with those maybe we can we can help stop it before it gets to this point just finally from both of you um uh, there's yet another easing of, of restrictions uh covid wise in england today uh, the double jab don't have to isolate now if they've come into contact with somebody who's tested positive so the pandemic, as we've all been calling it for absolutely ages uh might soon be over um Libby, where are you with all the freedoms being afforded to us all at the moment? Um, are you are you on board with it? Are you hoovering them up, or are you you know nervously sitting inside wondering what on earth's happening? I'm I'm generally um, going to the theatre as soon as every single one that I can get into, and I've been in packed houses, and I've been you know I've. I've enjoyed it all enormously. I'm I'm a kind of reasonably reasonably cautious. I try to be civil. I try to wear a mask if everybody else seems to be wanting to wear a mask. Um, but uh, no, I, I'm I'm horribly relaxed, really. <laughs> 
horribly relaxed. <laughs> Rachel, yeah. what about yourself? Horribly yeah. relaxed? I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously enjoying it. I have, uh, I'm naturally very, very anxious, but I finally booked an overseas holiday for, for in September because I think maybe, maybe, just maybe, it might, it might all work out. Um, no, I'm, I'm with Libby. I'm, I'm, I'm wearing a mask when I'm out. I am uh, trying to be in outdoor spaces when possible, but I am really enjoying just the, the being able to, to see people and do things without having to panic uh, and, and, and without it being a, a very complex hang on. Am I, am I six people? Am I five people and a dog? Yes. Uh, is, it, is, it, is it the second Tuesday <laughs> of a month with an R in it? Uh, it is, it's certainly re- relaxing. Obviously, slight panic that, that, things will change but I think that this this summer there have been a lot of, of scaremongering warnings about the July the 19th date and now about this and actually so far fingers crossed it seems to be going sort of okay so yes I'm enjoying it while it lasts. I still keep catching myself looking aghast when I see a table of you know sort of 12 people or something inside in a restaurant or a pub there is a part voice still in my head which kind of goes how is this happening and you think no it's okay now i know but you just think there's just this <laughs> reflex in your mind thinking that's not allowed and you think no it is is allowed chill out that was lily purvis and rachel cunliffe next the mother and father of the house of commons i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Now, mother and father of the House of Commons, Harriet Harman and Sir Peter Bottomley. Um, Harriet Harman, first of all, when <laughs> the 85 years figure, which I keep quoting, how does that make you feel? Well, I, it just reminds me how much change there's been from when I first arrived in the House of Commons. Um, really, so much has changed how it looks, the style of Parliament, what we debate, how we debate it. And I think for the most part, things have improved. Some things mm. have not improved, but for the most part, things have improved in terms of how we do our essential job of scrutinising government and representing our constituents and helping our constituents. Well, we'll get to improvements or not a little bit later on. Um, So, Peter, first of all, can you take me back to day one? Well, my my day one was in 1975, which was some time back. Like like Harriet, I got elected in a a by-election. And perhaps like Harriet, the advantage of that is that nearly all your parliamentary colleagues have been down to your constituency to either help your stop you getting elected 
So in fact, you're known by people, which is very different from the experience of people who come in a cohort of 80 or 120 new MPs who aren't always recognised. In fact, some people think they're girl guides or Boy Scouts on initiative tests trying to see how far through the house comes they can get before being challenged. I, I think that one of the interesting questions is whether you come in in opposition or in government. And a second is whether by chance you continue. And there's plenty of merit in being a member of parliament for one set, one parliament. There's plenty of merit in being there for two or three. Mm. There's no obvious merit for being there for a long time, but some of us um, are the survivors, and we're survivors by chance as much as by um, uh, justification. And when you arrived in the House of Commons in 1975, who were... Um... Who were the giants that, that you immediately saw and look, looked up to and maybe, you know, were, were giddy to, to meet? Well, uh, Harry will probably agree on this. Some people uh, are interesting because they have the gift of the gab. Uh, Michael Foote could charm the birds off the trees. Um, if you actually looked at the speech afterwards, you made you, you gave you admiration for the Hansard writers, the official reporters, who could make sense of what wasn't written, uh, written out in advance. Michael Foote was a dream writer and a dream speaker, but his writing and his speaking were totally different. You had some people who could be electrifying when challenged. And I think Margaret Thatcher, both in opposition and uh, to, to draw a sad analogy now, in the Saturday debate on the Norway, uh, the, 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 the Saturday debate on the Falklands invasion in 1982, uh, could speak off the cuff just as well as they could have a sensible prepared speech. But some of what you experience in Parliament is just the, uh, the ordinary backbench and making the ordinary backbench of speech, whether attacking a government or defending a government, and, and those don't normally go down in history. What you really want to do is to find the people who can bring new experiences. So, and you can say so about Harriet, having had her work at the National Council of Civil Liberties, she was on the, on, on the how do you make individual cases into general justice type of approach. And that was a contribution which I think was, was rare. Mm. You know, she wasn't the conventional person from the trade union. She wasn't the conventional person who worked for a, a, a cabinet minister. She actually had an independent legal career on the justice side. And Parliament is as much about justice as it is about checking and controlling government. Harriet, take us to, to 1982 then. And, and similarly to what I asked Peter, I'm interested in, in when you arrived. Um, who were some of the people that you met or maybe sought out uh, who at that time, in your eyes, were you know, the giants of the day? Well, obviously, there were very big figures on the Conservative side. There was Margaret Thatcher, there was Michael Heseltine. Um, and on the Labour side, there was John Smith um, and Robin Cook from Scotland, Neil Kinnett from Wales. But in a way, I didn't come in in order to get to know them and to make myself known to them. I came in really with a sense that Parliament was completely out of date and old fashioned. And rather than cozying up to the powers that be, I needed to be part of those people who wanted to change Parliament, make it more representative of the country as a whole, make it better at doing its job of scrutinising government and making it less of a stuffy old boys club and more of a place where government policy could be properly scrutinised and individual MPs could bring the voice of their constituency. But I think it's funny because I was just thinking back when you invited me to, to do this programme. When I first came in the House of Commons, there were more than 50 members of parliament who'd themselves been miners, who'd actually worked down the mines 
and who, through their trade union, the National Union of Mine Workers, and then through the Labour Party, come to sit on those green benches in the House of Commons. And speaking from that mining and that sort of industrial experience, um, that's what we had in, in great strength then. But we had virtually no women, only 3% of the House of Commons was women, and yet 50% of the population was women, regarding themselves as equal, but having no voice. So, and I think also, in those days, there was very much of a sort of style of speaking. Now the kind of style is be yourself. Um, I remember it was very frowned on if you if you didn't dress properly and professionally. Now the idea is, you know, the word is authenticity. People come in just dressed as they are. They speak from their own personal experience. Like, for example, people have spoken about mental health problems. Women have spoken about uh, going through the menopause. That was inconceivable, wasn't it, Peter, when you and I were first in the House of Commons all those years ago, when politics was more formal, more about the intellectual ideas rather than about the feelings. And now we've got the intellectual idea plus people's emotional experience as well. So I think that's an improvement. And so, so Peter, from your view then, when you entered Parliament in 1975, what did you see that you didn't like, uh, be it in the sort of stuffiness that Harriet talks about there or, or the way that it's set up or the representation. And when you arrived, were you surprised by anything? Was there anything on top of what you were already expecting? I wasn't really surprised because by chance, one of the schools I'd gone to was across the road from the Palace of Westminster. And I went into, when I had a spare time, would go and listen to the debate. So I wasn't thinking of going to a, a life in politics, which happened almost by chance, but I was interested in, in debates I was standing outside number 10 during what was called the Knife of the Long Knives in 1962 when Harold Miller made, made various cabinet changes. So I was familiar with the processes of politics and the, and the voices of politics. What I wasn't used to was the idea that if you went saw a door saying members only, it male, meant male members only, it was the gents. If you, in the House of Lords, if you saw a door saying peers only, it was male peers only, it wasn't for lady members of the House of Lords. Uh, when my wife got elected a couple of years after Harriet, she, there were, I think, 23 women MPs, Harriet was one of them. Uh, when Virginia joined the Cabinet, she was the ninth or tenth woman to join the Cabinet. And these things were just incredibly rare in those days. Now it's, it's, it's not quite equal, but it's getting nearer to people being considered on merit. And I think if you, if you look at people's selection experience, there were very few women in the selections I was involved in. It's different now. And I think that kind of thing has changed. What hasn't yet changed is when we can answer the question, when will the colour of my skin be as important as the colour of my eyes or the colour of my hair, something you notice, but doesn't say this person's more likely or not to be a member of parliament, a peace officer or a prisoner. Hmm. Harriet, when you entered then, I wonder what surprised you in terms of what you were talking about then, in terms of either the stuffiness or the way it was set up. Was there anything in addition to what you were expecting that shocked you? Well, I... I think that I, I knew all the downsides of Parliament, which is why I went into Parliament. I went into it not to sort of enjoy it and be part of the system, but to change the system. And really what I, I, I sort of learned and experienced is how long it takes to make change and how you can't do it on your own. You have to work together with other people, other people on your own side. And if you can get support from other people, on the other side of the house as well. I mean, for example, when I was first elected in 1982, I was pregnant 
And that was something that had to be brushed under the carpet because somehow it didn't seem possible to be both a woman who was in her childbearing years actually having children, but also like other women in, in the country, was working as well as bringing up a family. And it was only very recently that we had Tulip Sadiq, uh, Member of Parliament, um, in a wheelchair, nine months plus pregnant, needing a caesarean, but having to, to vote in person because there was still no arrangements for there to be a proxy vote so that somebody could vote on her behalf because she was actually having a baby. And that only just changed within the last uh, couple of years. So it shows how, how long it takes, but things have moved forward. But I just want to say something today of all days, because one thing when the House, I think, feels the same way about things on all sides is something that is very pertinent at the moment, and that is Afghanistan. And I remember when I was standing in for Gordon Brown when he was Prime Minister, or when I was acting leader of the Labour Party, reading out the names of those servicemen who died in Afghanistan. And that is a moment of real silence in the House of Commons. And everybody is thinking about those relatives, those, that family and friends of that serviceman whose name we have read out and thinking of their loss in his service in the army or the air force and thinking today as well of those families who, what are they feeling um, when when the situation is so terrible in Afghanistan. What about your experience of that, Sir Peter, that those moments where obviously so much what is debated in the Commons is is important and is relevant to people's lives, but when, as, as Harriet says there, it's issues of life and death for many people. Tell us about a time when you've really felt the weight of that responsibility in terms of what you do. Well, one of them, again, I made reference to the Saturday debates of the Falklands in 1982, where even if Margaret Thatcher had not wished the Argentinians out of the Falklands, she would in effect been forced to do so by the speeches by James Callaghan and Douglas Jay, people who had both had experience uh, of, of, of war. Douglas not actually in the services, but a, a very important sort of When we came into the House of Commons, there were a number of people who had had experience, uh, Walter Harrison, David Deputy Whip, who had been in the uh, retaking of Italy, there were a number of Conservative MPs who had fought through North Africa and up to Monte Cassino. There were the people with the quiet uh, crosses and equivalent medals at other ranks. Uh, we've now actually got back to the stage in terms of having a number of people with significant military service. There was a period of about 20 or 30 years when there was no one in who'd had significant command in any of our uh, armed forces. I think that... Again, I, I'd refer people who are interested to looking at the reports of the Falklands debate. Uh, and I'd also suggest they look at the Norway debate, the debate in May 1940, when, uh, in effect, Neville Chamberlain won a vote but lost the House of Commons. And the remarkable speeches by people like Lloyd George, by uh, Arthur Greenwood, and various others, and the way Winston Churchill defended Chamberlain, but then became Prime Minister shortly afterwards, and I'm not suggesting we're going to get that sort of change in, in the debate we have on Wednesday over the Afghanistan, but to have the debate when we'll have people like Tom Tugendhat, uh, chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, who will be uh, speaking, having had his own experience in Afghanistan, and other people on both sides who did the same thing, it will be an inspiring debate to listen to. Uh, some of us may make short contributions, Blank will be really there mm. to listen to those who can guide us to the future 
building on the lessons of the past. There'll be a number of people who will say, I told you so. Well, that may be so. The key point is what do we learn to do better? And if I may say so, if I do get to speak, I hope I'll have at least one sentence on Haiti, a small island near Cuba and Dominican Republic, where thousands of people may have lost their lives in an earthquake a month after their uh, prime minister was assassinated, and where we tend to pay not, not enough attention. I'm not suggesting we can go there and sort out their problems. But if we care about people, we should care about them in this country, in Afghanistan, in Haiti, and everywhere in the world. I'm interested to hear from both of you about the the sort of social aspect of so much of what happens in the House of Commons. We're always hearing about um, things being thrashed out in tea rooms and bars and the rest. And I wonder um, how clubbable you both are. Harriet, are you particularly clubbable? Well, I had a, developed a reputation for not being clubbable. And that was kind of held against me that... I would not succeed in politics because I was not clubbable. And in fact, I didn't really want to be part of that club, which was very stuffy, traditional. Um, and also, I couldn't be clubbable because I couldn't be hanging around the bars late at night because I had young children that I needed to go home to. And I think that... Um, that actually too much is made of that. I think what should be looked at is not whether people are approved of or liked personally by their colleagues, but what they actually do to make a difference for their constituents and for, for the national agenda. Because, you know, we're not elected by our constituents to be popular or to have lots of friends um, or to be having a drink late at night with lots of people. We're there to actually do the most serious job you can possibly mm. have. So actually, I do regard myself as quite a sociable person, but that was not my reputation because of the way the House of Commons was then and also my, my family responsibilities. And it's interesting, with more women now in the House of Commons, as Peter said, there was only 23 out of 650 when I was first elected. So issues like childcare for working parents issues like domestic violence were simply not discussed at all. Now, with not only women on the Labour side, but on the Tory side and in all parties, the, the substance of the political agenda has changed. So we can uh, discuss the money supply, but we can also discuss maternity leave. Really, things the uh, agenda has broadened out. And as Peter talked about in relation to members of the armed forces um, serving in the House of Commons as MPs, we have today on all sides, and we will hear from in the debate on Wednesday when Parliament is recalled, people who've actually had military experience, whether it's Dan Jarvis, whether it's Tobias Elwood or Johnny Mercer or Tom Dukenhart, many others who will talk from the benches of the House of Commons, really from very important personal experience. And that's what is important about the House of Commons. It needs to have a multiplicity of voices so that when an issue is raised, hmm. you hear from people who've got direct personal experience and know what they're talking about, as well as having belief systems. Wednesday is an interesting example that, that you both keep mentioning, of course, Parliament being recalled to debate what's happening in Afghanistan. Um, does the thought of Wednesday make you think about the actual use of the House of Commons and its limits in terms of what it can do? Um, there's not going to be a vote on Wednesday. Nothing really is going to happen. Lives are not necessarily going to be saved in Afghanistan because of what members of the House of Commons say on the floor on Wednesday. 
so Peter, are you ever, do you ever have a sense of, of, of feeling useless? There isn't a straightforward answer to that, and I hope not to sound like a politician. I, I could, in my sort of what my wife calls my MLM moments, my me, lovely me moments, go through a number of things where I, with other people, over a period of time, have made a significant difference. Uh, partly it's by example, partly it's by getting a coalition together of, of the, the overwhelming minority who can make things change. But I think it's not just like that. It's also a, a question of, have you got the endurance? It's like, in a way, having children. You can start having a child quite easily. You, not easy. I've never born a child, but having them from birth through to um, middle age, you just keep going. And you can look back, sometimes be surprised, sometimes be amused, sometimes be horrified. But remember, you, you, most children will make some of the mistakes their parents themselves have made. In Parliament, if I say to the government, you ought to do this, and they don't, I don't feel impotent i feel i've got to go on trying to persuade them or force them one or the other and eventually you can get there and i think that if you the, the reason i go on doing it is until the good lord gets me to her bosom is that i think i'm doing enough good i think i'm having enough fun and the things i fail at are important enough to try and when you fail that's not being impotent that is you haven't succeeded yet harry Harmon, what would you point to if if you were asked at the end of your career uh, in many, many more years' time, um, what was the use of, of Harriet Harman, MP? What would you point them to? Well, I think that for every one of us who's an MP, for every single day, what we are and what we do is incredibly important because we are democracy. It's people who voted for us. It's everybody in our constituency that we have that kind of duty, we have that responsibility on our shoulders. So anything that we say in the House of Commons, any individual MP is important because our constituents are important and we are their voice. So it's not just about your personal quest for things that you want to change in your own political agenda. It's also we're part of an incredibly important institution. We have to be you know, strong and muscular in our activity in order to hold the government to account, to challenge and scrutinise what they're doing, and also to try and make progress for the future. But as far as the things that I've been part of, which I think are important, is that great big change where women of my generation turned around and said, well, we just don't think we're second-class citizens. We don't think men should be making all the decisions and us abiding by them. We don't think men are the head of the household and we are subordinate. And we want to play our part in every aspect of life. And I played a part in the parliamentary side of that um, to try and help push forward the change that women in all other areas of life and in all other parts of the country were doing across those decades. And when we see what's happening to women in Afghanistan, you know, it is just heartbreaking how that shows it's just turning the clock back. Um, that's really heartbreaking. A word on the future um, of the House of Commons. Of course, again, Wednesday is a, is a good starting point for that because all of the 
all of the additional systems that, that were put in place because of the pandemic to allow people to to dial into debates and, and vote from home and the rest have been scrapped as we slowly, slowly exit this pandemic. So if you want to actually speak, if you want to vote and, and the rest of it, you actually have to um, walk into the chamber itself. Um, so Peter, what, what do you make of the of the speed of modernisation in terms of the way the House actually works? Well, I'm not sure I dare use the word modernisation when <laughs> Jacob Rees-Mogg is still the House of Commons. Uh, and in fact, there have been changes with him around. Uh, and he, incidentally, is one of those people who I, I knew when he was young. And th- there's many good sides to him now as the word then. I mean, he, he can be very amusing, he can be quite rigorous, and he can tell the truth as, as, as he thinks people should, should hear it. I, I, think, I think that... If more men can become members of the, my Dennis Thatcher Society, those of us married to women more important than we are, if more people can actually realise that the House of Commons is both uh, a, a day-to-day service and a blue light service for emergencies, then I think we'll keep the place in some kind of perspective. But the one thing I would pick up on, on an article by or a book by Dennis McShane, looking at proportional representation, is that if we break the link of MP with constituency, we won't get important issues brought to the attention of government nearly so often. It's because of the things experienced by my constituents that I get on my high horse and harry the government. Oh, Harry's not worked right with Harry Harmon, but persuade the government and Harry Harmon's type of service uh, to take it, pay attention, whether it's residential disorders problems, whether it's the issues of, of people caring the children with mental health problems. These things come from our constituents. And if we had a national PR list system or a ghastly regional list system, as we had for the European Parliament, you won't get much of that and mistakes will go on for much longer. So let, let's remember that both sides of Parliament, the day-to-day yeah. and the emergency services. Harriet, what about you? And I guess especially on that point of terms of even things like uh, members being able to dial in from home or, or vote from home, which were put in place for the pandemic, being rolled back. Um, do you think that the House of Commons is sort of frozen in aspect somewhat, somewhat in terms of how it does things? Well, I think that the advent of the COVID pandemic precipitated massive changes in the way the House of Commons does everything. So as you said, previously, you could only speak if you were in the chamber, you could only vote if you were in the House of Commons. And because people weren't supposed to be coming into the House of Commons because we were all in lockdown, it was all organised that you could ask a question remotely from your kitchen table. Um, You could speak in debates um, from your home and you could vote by proxy. And I think some of that we need to retain, but I think throughout the pandemic, and I don't know whether Peter would agree with me on this, I think that, you know, perhaps he will, that Parliament has been a bit of a sort of shadow of its former self. There is something about needing to be there in order to operate effectively. I still think that we should keep some of the ability for people to work remotely because if people are ill or they can't be there for some reason or another, some good reason, we shouldn't exclude them from participating. So we should keep some of the remote working, but not all of it. And it's been, I think, quite interesting looking at debates in the House of Commons when you see people actually in their own constituency um, speaking in a debate Um, you do get a sense of what Parliament is, is 650 different constituencies, each having their voice. 
And sometimes people talk about Westminster, but actually Parliament isn't Westminster. Parliament is 650 different constituencies. And you did, did get a sense of that when people dialed in remotely. But on the other hand, you did lose because of the fact that people weren't all there creating that atmosphere. For example, in Prime Minister's questions, and I think Boris Johnson has been had quite an easy ride. I mean, it's not easy being Prime Minister in a pandemic, obviously, but in the House of Commons, he's had much more of an easier ride than he will have when we're all back in the chamber uh, and he won't be able to just get away with the slights of hand that he's, um, I think, prone to indulging. And all of that, of course, uh, on Wednesday. Uh, you'll be able to hear uh, lots of that here, uh, live and highlights on Times Radio. Um, thank you both so much for your time. Harriet Harman and Peter Bottomley, mother and father of the House of Commons, uh, reflecting on 85 years between them on the Green Branches. Peter Bottomley and Harriet Harman. Uh, that is it from this edition of the Times Red Box podcast. We will be back tomorrow with how to take over a business. If you're thinking, oh, I could run Morrison's, we will tell you how to stage a business coup with some people who have done it before. Um, if you want to get this podcast up your phone every time it's available, subscribe and do all the rating and everything else. Uh, I'm at Luke Jones 03. I'm at Luke Jones 03 on Twitter. Matt will be back next week. <laughs>